Welcome to Always Andersonville, the podcast. I'm David. And I'm Gene from the Greater Ravenswood Chamber of Commerce. Today, we are joined by Alderman Andre Vasquez, a lifelong Chicagoan. Alderman Vasquez has worked to connect and include members across the 40th Ward. Before his time as Alderman, Vasquez worked as a senior management position at a utility company, eventually servicing over 145,000 Illinois households. Currently, Alderman Vasquez is actively engaging with the community, increasing sustainability, infrastructure, and justice. Welcome, Alderman Vasquez. How are you doing today? Doing well. Doing well. Uh, it's glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. Tell us a little bit about growing up in Chicago and your path of becoming an elected official. Had you always thought uh, that you might run for office someday, or was it you saw a situation that you really thought you could, that you felt like that you can really be a part of a long, a larger conversation. Yeah. Um, so growing up in Chicago, I never, ever thought about running for public office. I, um, you know, I, I grew up in an immigrant family. My parents came from Guatemala. Um, and so I kind of growing up just kind of really was taught to kind of keep my head low, stay working, stay studying. Um, and, and really didn't, to be honest, felt like an outsider in the community because my parents felt like outsiders, right, coming in here. Um, so kind of as, as a first generation, that experience is one where uh, you're exposed to these, these two different worlds, right? But in Chicago, uh, I was kind of a city kid and I, I knew what broke was. So, you know, in thinking about, um, you know, just, I think most people in Chicago don't feel that their government necessarily speaks for them or, or does the work of advocating and they feel far removed from government. I'd say I felt the same way. I grew up, um, like I said, poor, got displaced out of about four or five different neighborhoods, went to four different public schools growing up uh, and just kind of just worked. So I went from working retail to then uh, doing business administration for uh, AT&T and being in charge of the state for marketing. Um, met my wife, had our kids, and I think then I started really thinking about what I wanted to do with the rest of my life and, and where to, you know, um, apply, I guess, my energy and time. Uh, so started getting a little politically involved, or at least more aware. Uh, around 2015, I was a big Bernie person and got invited to meet Bernie. And once I got the picture with him, I'm like, okay, I'm going to go get this guy elected. Went to Iowa to knock on doors, came back here, put together a fundraiser, and then met community organizers who trained me in doing so. And then from there, over three years, kind of got to the point where we could run a race and be effective because the neighbors were asking if we could run. And so you ran and you won uh, and you just hit the two-year mark in office as alderman or alderperson. Uh, what are some of your, uh, you know, your proudest achievements from that first two years in office? Whew, I mean, there's, it's, we've done a lot. So when we first came into office, we had like um, neighbors who had concerns about trees getting cut because water mains were being replaced. So we put forth an ordinance that led to a um, pilot of different technologies that would allow the trees to be saved. So that was kind of like really coming into office, started working on that. Uh, we also passed legislation that um, allowed for uh, really the representation of gender identity when it came to city documents and city employees, right? Understanding the importance of, of language and context and making sure that people understood like how our society is evolving. Um, aside from policy, I think the, the past year through COVID, being able to bring neighbors in to kind of create this volunteer mutual aid group that allowed us to 
distribute 20,000 masks and had neighbors who were sewing masks before they were readily available. We were able to, to vaccinate 1,300 people in the ward through an event that we did uh, independent of any city help. Um, so I, I think that's all. It's been a lot to be the two years. And then the, the most recent one is we did kind of lead the change from alderman to uh, what's now alderperson. So we had raised that up at the city level, demanding that the state make the change, and then they ultimately did. So it's um, it's been pretty fulfilling, even though it's been through real tough times. As an alder uh, or alder person, I like alder because it's like a magic character. Um, <laughs> bring on the mage. Uh, <laughs> you focused on so many different things to help support and lift up the 40th Ward throughout the last two years. And... Uh, more now than ever has the sense of community been more the most important. And with projects um, that are really kind of moving forward because the city wants to celebrate, uh, hopefully seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. Can you talk a little bit about um, what you like to do, what you like to see with community aspects? Yeah, definitely. I know. Um... A lot, of what, a lot of what we did coming into office was really putting community at the forefront. That when we did like zoning processes, when we do um, anything where we're weighing in, community has a really large say and is involved in understanding of the process. I think COVID brought community together even more. You know, in a time where we were socially distant, what we saw was neighbors coming together, whether virtually or through other means, to make sure that we all felt supported. Um, but I think the other thing that we're trying to continue is there are a lot of learnings and takeaways from our time in COVID, right? Like the fact that we're able to have this conversation virtually um, is a plus. There's, there's ways to be efficient there. We also are working on reimagining public space. So looking at like the Ainsley Arts Plaza, right? Taking something that used to be parking spots and creating a public square. I think we want to continue to develop that. Uh, the Shared Streets is another program to make sure that we, we learn from our experience and not just feel like going right back to whatever was before. I think there's a lot of good opportunities in, in that. Well, and I wanna follow up on that. You mentioned your uh, mutual aid group that you've established in the 40th Ward and they did some incredible non-COVID related work in the winter, helping out uh, local seniors and vulnerable populations. But um, a lot of what they did this last couple of years, I guess now seemed especially focused on COVID. When you imagine what that ward group might start to work on in a post-pandemic world? What kinds of ideas do you have or what gets you excited about what they're capable of? Yeah, so right now we're trying to get it, you know, part of it is helping our office. So we had a lot of calls coming in and they were able to kind of do what we termed the virtual front desk and like our solutions team to really be able to funnel and filter everything that was coming in our office. So that'll remain. I mean, some of the, the front desk help will now be actual instead of virtual, but we do have like neighbors who want to continue that. Um, I, I, I'm confident Shovel Squad will be a staple for years to come uh, based on how the snow is going to be, right? Like that's, it's, that's been effective. And I think just kind of building up more of like our ground component because, you know, we did a good job of reaching out to a lot of our neighbors, but there are some who, you know, they don't get online. And we want to make sure that we have a field component. So we're reaching out to neighbors and make sure they know how to, how to get in touch with our office. And I, I would not be surprised if we have issues that come before us in the next number of years where we'll be best served by having those neighbors kind of, kind of step up. And for city budgets, um, you, like very few other aldermen, use participatory budget. 
can you talk a little bit about that and how your ward uses um, the funding? Yeah, so when we came in, the menu budget was 1.3 million. I think it's now gone up to 1.5. Um, where that's there for infrastructure projects, repairs, um, you know, sometimes art projects, public art, stuff like that. So um, when we came in office, we were pretty adamant and clear that we wanted to make that a participatory process. So we call it the people's budget to kind of frame it for neighbors, right? Uh, what we do is take the 1 million and put that up for neighbors to vote on. So over a number of months, we have people submit any idea under the sun in the 40th ward, we then vet it to see what's feasible based on the department and like guidelines of what you can do with menu funds and then put the uh, things that are feasible up on a ballot and then allow neighbors across the 40th to vote on those priorities. So they let us know how much of that 1 million goes to repairs uh, and then also put up projects. So most recently there was $100,000 appropriated to the creation of a dog friendly area at Winnemac Park, um, as well as I believe 100,000 appropriated for a mosaic and creation of public space outside of the Bloodlong Woods Library. So it, it's things like that, that when, when you give the, the community the tools and the agency to understand how government works, they'll engage more and really understand that it's a vehicle for them to, to bring about the things they wanna see uh, in the world. Those sound like uh, pretty significant different approaches to engaging with the community than your predecessor. Uh, are there other ways we haven't touched on that uh, politics or community engagement in the ward has changed significantly? Yeah, I mean, and I think um, present company might might also know some of this, right? Like, I would say I am probably the most accessible city council member. If you're talking online, you can Twitter, you can tweet, you can DM me, people tag me on Facebook. You know, we don't advise that that's where you submit requests, but it is how folks reach out and I am pretty responsive there, you know, even if I'm directing people to go to info at 40thward.org, but I want to make sure that neighbors know that like, I am responsive, I am listening to the issues, and I'm willing to have the conversation even with folks who, you know, we may not agree, but I think being able to have those conversations in a respectful manner and hear each other out is how we find the common ground that builds our community up. So, you know, anything that we can do where we're making sure that, that the people have a say, we're going to do. Folks are following local elections now more than ever. Do you think there'll be an increasing number of socialists or democratic socialists seeking to be uh, elected uh, to office over the next few years? Uh, what has been your experience been like as part of the, that movement? And what are your hopes uh, for the movement going forward? Yeah, absolutely. I, I do think you'll see more democratic socialists running for office. I think especially seeing kind of the wins that have happened across the country and Chicago having six city council members that are democratic socialists i think i think we'll see it move forward um what's been interesting for me is you know being being a representative of your map so to speak right every terrain is different you've got places like pilsen where you got um alderman byron citra lopez where there are clear gentrification fights going on and then you've got places like the 40th ward where those fights have been won a long time ago and in effect it's, it's a completely different dynamic. So I think what we will learn, hopefully, is that kind of like asking somebody what, what it means to be a Democrat, that there's a spectrum of, of different ways to approach and have these conversations with ultimately having the same goal, that people are the ones that make the decisions, that we have a more democratic and truly democratic government, um, and that we have one where we're able to counter the influence of large corporations and big money. 
And so I think that I think that's across the board. But I think as you get more people that are elected and are able to kind of show how they lead, people will get a better understanding of, of what it means to be a democratic socialist, separate from the connotation, depending on how people look at it. How hard was it for you to message what it means to be a democratic socialist on the campaign trail uh, during an election where there were a lot of candidates vying for that seat? Yeah, it was uh, it was very interesting, right? Because in our race, there was another democratic socialist, Ugo Kerry, who you kind of got a different flavor of democratic socialism, right? You got to see full on red branding and the roses and, and, and it's like fight. And then kind of what we did or what I did at the doors was look at it more from um, really a customer service lens, like talking to neighbors and asking them what they wanted to see improved and positioning more what government could look like with people at the helm, right? People in the driver's seat. And so for me, it wasn't necessarily like, hey, you should vote for democratic socialism more than explaining what that looks like. Because if you remove the category, then you remove whatever stigma might exist and you can just talk about solutions and that serves well. And I think it uh, continues to. Uh, how often does the mayor confuse you and the other democratic socialists in council? <laughs> it, it's definitely happened at least once. Um, you know, I, I, I want it, to, it would be easy for me to like crack the jokes, right? I just think that people want a government that works and they want two branches of government that can, can work together and cooperate to find solutions for neighbors. And unfortunately, that hasn't proven to be the case with the current administration. I think, um, I know me personally, I've gone out of my way to find ways to work together. Uh, I mean, part of the reason why in like the last budget that I voted for was really working through a process and trying to figure out, hey, we're not gonna get everything we want, but how do we find some agreement and then even after that process to really see that ultimately if the mayor has a certain feeling for someone, the door is closed. It, regardless of any kind of history you're trying to work together, I think it's really unfortunate for people in the city. Um, that being said, everyone's got the opportunity to grow. We've got more time. So a pivot could happen and, and we could see that kind of dynamic change. I'm always going to be hopeful for it, especially being somebody who has gone through my own growth and evolution, right? I don't think I, I write people off based on situations, um, but it, it's, it's, it puts us in a difficult spot knowing who we have to advocate for and not being able to even have the conversations to engage and move things along. Um, but, you know, we didn't sign up for easy, so we're here to make sure we work. Yeah, and it sounds like uh, bringing it back to our conversation about the socialist movement and council that that budget vote put you in a bit of a spot with some of your peers. Uh, and so I, looking back on that now, I don't want to get too far sidetracked into the weeds, but uh, do, you, do you feel like you got what you were looking for in terms of trying to yeah, uh, work with both sides there, uh, which is something that seems increasingly difficult everywhere in politics? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I knew what the response would be based on that vote. I think. Um, in, in the public, a lot of it was being kind of galvanized and it was polarizing. So, so I wasn't under any um, assumption that it wouldn't go that way, right? I think looking at what occurred in that budget vote, it was the first time in Chicago history that the Latino, progressive, and Black caucuses formed a coalition to actually negotiate at the table. And so that led to a lot of things that I know for a fact were not going to be part of that budget. Like it went from $10 million for um, 
violence prevention that ain't isn't police to 36 million because of negotiation we were able to remove the welcoming city carve outs I, I know because i made calls myself to the mayor to say hey it's not not what you want to do on this one because you're pushing more people away than you're adding on um we also were able to get the first mental health uh you know crisis pilot without police that was also part of this budget that so there, there's a lot of things we also were able to avert anywhere from 350 to I believe 2000 layoffs of city workers. And so I think the thing that, that I would like to get folks to kind of really have more awareness on budgets is that they're not binary. It's not this thing where, oh, the mayor presented her budget and either you're for or against it. Because if you look at the, like the last votes, there were 21 no votes. Out of those 21 no votes, 14 of them were members of the council that were more conservative than the progressives. So if the mayor's looking to get 26 votes, all she would have had to do was remove the investment in violence prevention, keep the layoffs, and tell the more conservative members, hey, we get to lower the property taxes even more because we're not funding those things. And she would have gotten three votes from the conservatives and you would have had a worse budget. So I think that's the part that's hard to, to, to articulate because people aren't, you know, the government in our society does not provide full awareness of how budgets work. And we want to make sure we continue to bring that on so people get that there's a lot more than just like, oh, this isn't, you know, the mayor's evil budget or not. Um, they took a lot of negotiation to get any kind of wins. And in the moment that we were in during COVID, it was about more than just saying we didn't like a budget. It's about what we could secure and, and make sure we were able to bring on board to support people during that time. I think that's incredible because there are so many uh, citizens where everyone wants the best representation they have from their aldermen, from their city council, from their mayor. And a lot of it is done without actually full acknowledgement of the process or how it goes. And over the last couple of years with aldermen like yourself or older persons like yourself, it's becoming more to the forefront. So folks know exactly how things work and how things can be. And it's always gonna be a process. Has there been folks who approached you or um, situations that people ask you, how can I be more involved? Uh, how can I step up to the plate and help my community uh, in similar ways that you have? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, kind of speaking about like the neighbor network and like some of the mutual aid stuff, there's folks who just wanna have a better understanding of how government works. And I think part of, it's why I'm so passionate about being this accessible, right? That like if someone has a disagreement or a different perspective that we're able to talk through it because I grew up in this city and I had zero understanding of local government prior to like six, seven years ago, right? And I'm 42 years old. So I think about intentionally creating what we call open government, where you see all these decisions and you understand it. So it's not just like the reporting on it, right? Um, and and I, I, my hope is that my neighbors and, I, and I'm pretty confident of it. They understand that like I try to get everybody's input before we make these decisions. And uh, my gut tells me looking forward when it comes to the future budgets, the fact that I was able to come to the table and have that conversation and then just say like, it's a non-starter allows us to have more full discussions about future budgets. Okay, uh, pivoting away from budget talk and back to something that you mentioned earlier, you brought up the Ainsley Arts Plaza. Yeah. Um, I feel like supporting the arts, especially along North Lincoln Avenue, has been a hallmark of your first two years in office. Uh, where does that affection for the arts come from? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm an artist, right? I think, you know, I had, when I was growing up, 
like I was the kid who was writing poetry and drawing in my little book and like not having a lot of friends and just trying to find ways to articulate and express myself like I think we all do right and um when I got to high school a lot of the people who I kind of met and kind of grew close to were all the misfits uh in high school which ended up being like the hip-hop kids right so so it's always been something that I felt gave me voice allowed me to to be in front of a room and feel confident and and I learned a lot like a lot of my political takes come from like NWA or Nas or Public Enemy really putting that stuff out there through through art and music so when I thought about the the AZ like the Lincoln stretch and just the opportunity there when I think about what invigorates a community art is always a priority and I think it's something that isn't a heavy lift right like putting murals up in a certain place allows you to frame things in a certain manner being able to create public spaces where people can provide live entertainment that creates an attraction I think that coupled with my experience of like being displaced through gentrification makes me look at it and say this is clearly a benefit and also how do we make sure that we have housing affordability so in effect property values don't raise and people aren't displaced um, because we want those artists that that bring that richness that fullness and that expression to be able to live in the places that they help form that's a really good um point for it because it is like an ecosystem where you need every parts of the community from artistic to business to everything to make a neighborhood feel like a neighborhood and moving forward allowing folks to feel that they belong um, really solidifies a neighborhood yeah and, and like look at the work that you all do as the chambers right like it, it in effect is a, a very similar to what we were doing with community you're bringing in all these business owners to really create that space and support them and so you know being able to partner with the chambers and in, in bringing that together and looking at like Catalpa and Andersonville things like that I think it's um it's a joy to be able to do that with community partners like yourselves. Well, then feel free to use this as an opportunity to instigate some programming. One of the questions I've had about Ainsley is if you can't work on a project that long without imagining what's going to happen to it after. And I know that you've got full faith that the oh, community yeah. is going to come out and program that space. But, you know, as you start to put that together, uh, what's the thing that you most kind of have envisioned happening there or would love to see happen uh, at Ainsley or oh, at yeah. Balmoral at one of these spaces in the 40th? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think um, I appreciate it felt long to me, like talking to the colleagues, they were like, wait, you do that in like six, seven months. That takes two years to do. Uh, I think that was part of me just having weekly meetings with the Department of Planning and Development. Um, but yeah, I absolutely had vision. So I think you can do an open mic there. I think you do a spoken word poetry night. I think you can pull off a DJ night because what's really cool. And we did an event two weeks ago there. It's already incredibly loud because it's on Western and Lincoln which allows you the ability to be that much louder in the space. So you, you can have a mere, like here's a, oh, okay. So we're working on it potentially, but I think a 40th ward talent night would be awesome, right? You get neighbors all across the ward to go, hey, just sign up, get on the mic, do, do your thing, and then kind of really help bring community together. Uh, we're also in talks about figuring out a mural fest uh, in like next year. Uh, and, and then like, you know, like I mentioned Catalpa and Andersonville, creating that to be a similar kind of space. So I think the more you're able to do that and, and we continue to bring community together, we get more people coming to like the business districts, you're just gonna see, uh, continue seeing it flourish. At some point I'll wrap, but not anytime soon, I think is where I'm at on that one. 
I'm saving the ask for your wrapping services for when we bring Ravenswood on tap back next year. That's real. That's fair. <laughs> you see how open government I get you through an idea and I'm like, wow, that's the thing we could try to figure out. So uh, I, I'm always down if we figure out how we can execute and implement. Like, yeah, let's have the conversation. I also just, uh, my two cents as an event planner, I love the idea of that sort of ward talent show uh, taking place at the start of the spring because it gives folks like David and I an opportunity to check out what talent's right here in the ward as we're booking Midsummer Fest and Ravenswood on tap. I mean, think about that as like prizes, right? Like, yo, you got first to third place. You guys get to go perform at the events. Like, yeah, I think, uh, again, kind of to, to David's point, like it, it really helps grow that ecosystem of like community there. I love it because you could, you can, it spans every age range. I was a huge science person growing up. And like you say these uh, types of events and I'm like, let's bring up the science fair kids. Let's see what they brought to, to class. I mean, I would show up for that and just be amazed. Yeah, um, I thought about that. And I know before COVID we had talked about like flavors of the 40th. So having yeah. all the different restaurants set up in the same space, like a little like taste of the 40th, right? Uh, there's a lot you can do with the space. And so uh, in some regard, we kind of lost a little bit of a year, but that didn't like remove those ideas. So now it's figuring out how to implement in the time that we have. So for people listening who have an idea for that space and want to try to do something with it, can they just run over and set up a DJ booth there right now? Or is there a permit that they need? So it, because there's the because it's the public way, no permit is needed unless you're trying to sell something or like sometimes if you're a live entertainer, you've got to have the badge to be able to perform in public square. Um, aside from that, it is the public way. So you're it's pretty open. Um, we've been working with uh, uh, Lincoln Square Ravenswood Chamber, who's kind of established like a, a schedule and like a calendar for folks who are interested. Um, so right now we're going to like I think it makes sense to have the chambers figure out the programming and then independent of what's already scheduled, open game, right? So that's kind of how we view it. Will there be a calendar on your uh, website that folks can check out um, or submit proposals? I'd say for, for that right now, if they email info at 40thward.org, but I, I could see us partnering and figuring out like that shared calendar and just kind of have it a, a landing page on our page as well, just so people have multiple points to be able to kind of get in. Excellent. I've been practicing on my recorder. Nice, nice. Looking forward to it. <laughs> uh, as you are an alumnus of the Chicago Public Schools, what are some things that you're doing uh, to attract, retain families with school-aged children within the 40th Ward, um, just like activating the Ainsley strip? Yeah, I mean, part of it is that. Part of it is very much like housing, right? I think um, we've got a lot of the single-family homes, and, and to be honest, like, it brings some families, but when we talk about adding density and having affordable housing, part of our conversations are making sure you're not talking just single, you know, single unit, single bedroom spaces, because part of it is having people be able to live close to like the schools here and having the proximity to do so. So that's that's a lot of what we, we work on. Um, you know, obviously we, we stay in contact with the principals. Uh, and faculty at the different schools in the 40th. So whenever they've got events, making sure we continue to uplift that. We've got like the friends of groups that do events. So I think similarly, right, building the community around that creates an environment that is inviting to people who are kind of figuring out where they're going to take their kids. And now what's really cool is we're getting to like the school board coming. So 
we get to even highlight that. So thanks to Springfield for that one. So as you're working with schools, um, how have you found success engaging local students and young people from the 40th in politics? Has that been something that your office has been trying to work on or is it something you're identifying for going forward when things open back up more? Yeah, you know, and, and that's something that I think we've been wanting to work on more is like establishing a youth council the way some of like our colleagues that have just come on have been doing. I think what, what I was doing initially was literally just as accessible as I've been like online is like every school, hey, let's meet with the kids if they want to know what what I do, what part of the job is, and, you know, really find out their interests and listen to their concerns. We have that with every school going on. Um, and the reason why I do it is because I never had that going to CPS. I had zero understanding what an older person does. And, um, you know, I make it a habit that every time we do those kind of like Q&As with the, the kids, I ask who's interested in running. And sure enough, people get kind of quiet and then somebody will raise their hand up a little bit. And I'm, I'll tell them, write it down, remember it, because we all doubt ourselves when it comes to like those kind of ambitions and you need to articulate it. And I tell them like, I'm 42 years old and I started six, seven years ago. Y'all are like in high school, grade school. So you have a head start that you wouldn't believe. And that if you all need any help with any of it, like reach out to our office. But I think we want to make sure we create more of a council format to be able to have regular communication as well. So you hit the, uh, the nail on the head because it's like you try to remember what grade you're in that you learned about local politics uh, or politics in general. And I can't think of a time where someone explained to me the importance of being an older person and how it relates to the city. Yeah, um, no, like, I, I don't know if it was like, like my, my biggest experience, it was like, hey, here's your constitution test. Great, you must understand government, keep it moving, right? And, and that just doesn't serve anybody because especially in the absence of real education, you get people in my position who get to pretend that they're like higher than someone else and holier than thou. When if you understand government, we're employees of the people, your taxes pay our salary. So in effect, we're customer service. And I think being able to frame it that way is extremely helpful for our society. So shifting gears, uh, you've been an advocate of Vocal One at times for legalization of marijuana in Chicago. You've worked to destigmatize recreational use in the city. Um, knowing some of the conversations that are happening locally about equity in marijuana um, and how much tax revenue we're bringing in, I thought might be a good time two years in to get your opinion on some of the successes and failures of legalization. Yes, thank you for, for uh, asking that. So yes, clearly I'm an advocate for cannabis. I am also a proponent and a user. I've got my medical card, right? And, and I'm very vocal about that because we do need to normalize it. I think looking at different substances, uh, alcohol ends up being more dangerous. So is fructose and everybody drinks their Coca-Cola all day. Um, and I think we have to realize that this isn't the era of reefer madness and like racist narrative that would keep people looking at cannabis a certain way. Um, I think as far as successes and failures, it's a mixed bag, right? So when the state passed it, um, you know, it then came to the city council to figure out zoning. And there was a, a bit of a debate and fight over what the city could do to stop or, or, or move forward on cannabis. And, and, you know, I voted to kind of move things forward because I had some level of confidence that the state had really kind of thought things through. And there was a disparity study that was supposed to occur. 
I, I think COVID threw a lot of things off, but even without that, we saw that the lotteries were ultimately leading to rich white men uh, owning the dispensaries. And so that that is clearly a failure and a problem. Um, it, it was just challenging looking at it because whether you stopped zoning for six months or a year, it doesn't change the dynamics of who has the money and capital to get into the game. Um, but now, because enough people have been raising it up at Springfield, what we're seeing is the new uh, legislation being put forth creates another two lotteries that are a lot more focused on social equity um, uh, owners, right? So now we've got to go back and look at city government and say, well, how do we make sure that we're not restrictive to those social equity players? Because what they did in the zoning is made it extremely restrictive to the point that like government's hard enough to work through. If you're trying to set up your first dispensary, trying to move through that process and then have, you know, to go through a zoning change for every little thing, makes it a lot harder for, for people to overcome that hurdle. So what I propose is parity with alcohol. Instead of being more restrictive, like you've already got a template of how things can look going forward. Um, but we're also trying to see what consumption looks like. So uh, that hasn't been determined by the city yet. And I think it would be very interesting to see how um, progressive and aggressive we can get with those licenses to make sure that it's black folks, brown folks, and people that have been marginalized, arrested, all due to this like fake war on drugs that the country had going on for decades. And when you talk about consumption, you're talking about potential consumption on premises for a business or a private consumption, like how much Chicagoans are consuming cannabis. So it's, it's for a business. So currently dispensaries you can purchase, but you can't smoke on site. You can't, there's no space for that. And, and there isn't any space to do it in the public either. Right. It's either in your home. And if you're a renter, your landlord could kick you out. So so that's still very restrictive. Um, and we've got to work at the, at the dispensary level to figure out what at least on site consumption would be for those businesses, because currently that's not the law. But I think if we create the, the kind of world where the social equity owners are the ones that kind of have the most ability to have those consumption licenses, it changes where your money goes, because rather than go to the dispensary where you don't have the consumption, Consumers want an experience. And if we're able to kind of, you know, aim that in a direction that's more socially equitable, I think we all end up winning. As more and more states um, come on board with the legalization of marijuana, uh, have you followed another state that you would like to see kind of uh, Chicago or the state of Illinois um, uh, really look to as an inspiration? Well, I th that's what's challenging, right? Is like, we are kind of set, set a little bit of the bar as a state compared to the rest of the country in a lot of regards, right? So I think, I think that's what the, what's the challenge is we know we can go further as we're setting that bar, right? Like I, we still haven't done like delivery, which I know happens in other states, right? Um, I think I'd love to get to the point where there are more infusers out. So you can in effect have like cafes and restaurants that have cannabis infused goods, right? So I think, I think, We'll get there. It's just that this hurdle about making sure that the owners aren't what we've seen typically be owners of every market as it starts. Once we kind of get over that, I think you'll, you'll be able to see a lot more movement. From a Chamber of Commerce perspective uh, and being, you know, working in this part of the city, the number one question we heard from our members around legalization was, how can I participate? Uh, if I have a coffee shop, how can I partner up with a dispensary? If I have a bakery, uh, can I expand my business in that direction? Can I do collaborations on site? 
Uh, and as you've touched on, there just there's so many restrictions on that. There's so little that's possible. Um, right. But the the ideas are overflowing right now. So it's really exciting to hear about yeah, potential reworking of these laws to allow businesses to be creative and successful. Yeah, and I think another another layer to kind of make sure we have in mind is a lot of city council members do not necessarily agree with my perspective on cannabis, right? So you've got some boards where they're like, we don't want to see any of it because you know, again, the connotation over over generations really for, for cannabis. So the other thing I'm I'm pretty open is if you want to set up a dispensary, come talk to the 40 board office. We'll figure out along with the chambers where you can set up shop. Um I think to be real, having it close to an arts district, not the worst idea on the planet, but we also have got Andersonville, we've also got Greater Ravenswood. We've got a lot of places that are open. And I think for people who want to you know, once they're able to get their license, uh, it might be hard to find areas. Come to forward, you will figure it out. Another good reason to preserve some of the city's industrial corridor and some of these larger buildings that we have. So many of them get transitioned into residential use. It's something that we see constantly and discuss constantly in Ravenswood is the future of what this corridor looks like. And, uh, you know, we see it as one of the major job centers outside of downtown. There are over 2,000 people who sustain their families all across the city, all across the Chicagoland area uh, with jobs that happen here. And cannabis is something that we get questions about in the corridor quite a bit. Uh, you know, we're home to Malt Row. There's plenty of breweries here already. There are distilleries. There are wineries. It's practically a vice district short of a casino. Uh, and it's, you know, about as idyllic a community as you can wander through on most days. So um, yeah, I hope to see the city explore some more progressive ideas for what types of businesses can flourish here uh, beyond commercial office space. Yeah, no, I, I think uh, and it's something, I mean, we had a conversation. There was a time where Temple Steel was potentially looking to sell, right? And I looked at that space and said, oh, that's a grow, if anything, because of the amount of space you're talking. And thankfully, Temple Steel has been able to sustain and do really fine so that that's not the case. but when it was something where we had to figure out what might have to come in, it was definitely something we discussed. And uh, I guess on a tangent, because you mentioned the vice district, um, that's something we're working on too, is trying to remove that connotation of, of like vice, right? Like right now, um, I, along with uh, some of our colleagues are working on expanding the SPIF program. So the small business uh, improvement fund, so that it can include bars, taverns, and even the motels. So that, you know, everyone took a hit during COVID. This provides an opportunity to be able to like, let's say for 40 at down Lincoln to talk to those motels and say, hey, you know, if, if you take some of these funds, really rehab, remodel, re-envision like what this motel could be, you could have different clientele, raise more revenue and actually make it one of those like kitschy, like vintage things that I think would attract more folks. So. Um, we're working on that as well, because I think if you treat, you know, if you treat business owners like business owners and find ways that they can be successful, they're going to be incentivized to do so. So, you know, we're working on that as well. If you're tackling TIF and SPIF reform, all I'd suggest is that uh, maybe we find some way to keep SPIF programs in areas that don't have TIFs or lose TIFs. Mm -hmm. um, we represent, yeah. we're in a neighborhood where we represent a couple of TIF districts and a corridor that used to have a TIF that didn't. Uh, and we could probably do a whole nother hour conversation just on TIFs uh, and the good and the bad that yeah. come with them. But the Small Business Improvement Fund is one of those nuggets of good. And it's definitely something that we miss when a TIF goes away. Yeah, so I, I'll, I'll provide a teaser for you. So right now we've been in discussions with the administration to talk through bids 
or business improvement districts, which happen in other cities and states as a kind of mechanism for that, because we know not every place has a TIF. So I think that's something that ultimately has to change at the state level, but we are talking about it at the city. That's definitely some exciting news. Hopefully it ain't as slow as the rest of government, but we'll, you know, we're working on it. Well, you've got a track record of doing in six months what it takes everyone else two years to do. So we'll hold you to it. We'll check Thanks. with you in December. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, you're like starting now. <laughs> so um, new residents to the 40th Ward, what would you say to them? How can they connect with your office? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, 40thWard.org is the website. You can tweet, you can Facebook, you can look up 40th Ward on any social uh, platform, social media platform, and you'll find us. You can also email us at info at 40thward.org. The office phone number is 773-654-1867. And I'll do you one more. My cell phone number is 773-999-3313. So neighbors can shoot a text message even when I'm in between meetings. Um, we want to make sure we're that open so that we can respond to neighbors. Welcome to the 40th. Uh, can you uh, call out some of your colleagues, uh, your staff members? Not not their uh, personal selves, but like introduce this to your staff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, when you said call out, I'm like, they've been pretty good. I don't think I need to call them out. But uh, it was so, Jeffrey's birthday the other day. I mean, yeah, it was. It was yep. a happy birthday. We've got really an amazing team and I can't thank him enough. I mean, they were doing amazing work prior to COVID and having a transition. Like I, I give them the utmost kudos. So we've got our chief of staff, Jessica Peters. We've got our director of policy and development, Jeffrey Cubbage, uh, our director of constituent services, Pooja Ravindran. Uh, we have just added on a constituent services manager by the name of Jose Almanza to our team. Uh, we had a communications director slash community outreach uh, manager, Lindsay Tillman, who um, is now going to be transitioning to look for full-time work. So we're bringing in uh, another person on the team to kind of run some of that function as well. So yeah, we've been able to really bring on what I think is a very diverse team. And I think you're best served by that because the amount of different perspective and things that you have to consider um, it, it's really helped me to have so many people on the team that can provide different like perspectives and things to kind of make sure we take notice of. So um, yeah, all of us are here really thankful, grateful for the position and happy to serve. We ready for some uh, rapid fire questions? Yeah, I'm, I'm down. We've gone this long without mentioning comics or superheroes. Oh, dope. Dope. <laughs> We'll start off with favorite superhero series. Whoa. Yep. Wow, that's tough. I'll, I'll give you some time to think here. Uh, I may have missed something. Uh, is Alderman Vasquez a particularly huge superhero fan? Because we could do another 30 minutes just on X-Men. I, I named my son Parker because I'm a Spider-Man head. Legit. Like, I don't... That's all. Spider-Man didn't re doesn't really have a solid series, so I wouldn't go there. But I think like the um, like the old animated Batman series is like phenomenal, right? Like my top three would be Spider-Man, Batman, Wolverine. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd put that up there. All right, favorite member of the Sinister Six. <laughs> oh, oh man, um, it's kind of easy to say Doc Ock because he is brilliant. Electro looks cool. Sandman's all right. Um, I think the lizard. 
I think the lizard is probably like looking at it in the story and like some of the art. Like, yeah, I'd say the lizard is probably my favorite. I'm right there with you on that one. Yeah. Oh, and I do like the cinematic vulture. So like that was that was pretty dope. Michael sure. Keaton can be in every superhero movie forever, and I'd be totally happy with that. Amazing. Oh, yep. All right. Uh, who's your favorite artist to come out of the city of Chicago? It could be a comic book artist, could be a musician. I mean, I, it, that one's tough. I've got like, you know, Tim Seeley does comic comic book work, and he lives, I think, forty seven. Um, we've got Max Sansing, who does really amazing mural work. Ramen Static, Justice Rowe. Uh, Justice Rowe actually lives in the fortieth ward, so got a rep for the team. Um, Sam Kirk is amazing. I think we've got a lot of really, it's very hard to pick one. And I just want to make sure we continue providing platforms. Uh, Hebrew, right, is dope. Yeah, I don't know. That one's going to be tough. There's just a lot. I'll say Justice has done a lot of work with us. Uh, Andrew Jablonski, who did great work on the ANZRs Plaza. Yeah, it, that's going to be a hard one. <laughs> I got too many there. I think that's the most political answer you've given us the entire time. It's just tough, right? Art's subjective. It's a lot of dope work. And I, and I want some of them to be over here on Lincoln, so I got to make sure we shot them all out. So, yeah. Well, we'll be looking forward to the Molly Costello mural that's over in the 40th that's currently being painted right now um, on the side of the Clark. Um, oh, can't wait. Yep. It's shaping up nicely. Favorite music artist out of Chicago? Oh, out of Chicago, Sam Cooke. That's, that's probably not the one you would guess, but Sam Cooke is there, just something about a Sam Cooke song. It timeless and just so much soul in it. Yeah. That is yeah. a solid answer. And the second one, y'all can't see it, but let me see if I can get the map. Gotta have the Blues Brothers right there and shout them out. It ain't Chicago without the Blues Brothers on there, so gotta get them back. All right, if you were the commissioner of one city of Chicago department, which would you choose? Man, that's tough. Right now I'd say AIS, um, only because they're in charge of like 311 tech and like trying to make sure the rest of the government, like we're actually working on 311 modernization efforts, but D case, obviously, cause it's got art, uh, working with y'all and having a better understanding of like business, BACP would be one where you, I think you can streamline a lot. Um, but yeah, I, I'd say that's, those are the, I don't know that there's a ranking, but I, I'd be somewhere in that mix. What is your favorite, either old school memory growing up, um, thing to do in the summer? Like, forget about COVID. Chicago um, summertime activity. Yeah, I think being by the lake anywhere is just going to be timeless. Like growing up as a kid, going with the family, right? I think I'm always going to feel that way. I think the as a kid growing up, although the experience is different now, we used to go to Navy Pier and Grant Park all the time to rap and like have like these like ciphers. We'd get kicked out by the police fairly often. Um, and I, I don't think it's the same kind of dynamic, but being able to have that as a kid and meeting so many people from different parts of town. Um, yeah, that's an experience that, that really did change my life and it was formative. And I think, um, the more we can have that where kids across the city can meet each other and understand different environments, the better we are for it. I love that. Cause yeah, we did park district and then um, open the fire hydrants. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like that, that's so, I don't know that it's independently Chicago, but that is really Chicago being able to have those kind of moments. Yeah. When it's that hot out and you just want to cool off and have fun. Absolutely. 
All right, if you could pick a small business in the 40th Ward to run, which would you run? Or if you want to do one Andersonville and one Ravenswood, you can pick. God is trying to get me in trouble out here. We will make you Um, choose between neighborhoods. Man, you know what? I'm going to try, and I'll just shout a couple out that come to mind. In Andersonville, Gadabout, I think, is one that, like, it was going through some real challenging times because it just got started during COVID. But the the food and like the different cultures that they kind of like bring forth doing the street food, I, I think there's something really amazing about that. I'm trying to think Lincoln. Y'all put me on a spot. That was tough. I eat everything. So I literally like put me in a restaurant. We're gonna hang and do it. Oh, I think um Printmakers Collaborative over on Lincoln, like the work Deb does there is like I, I can just tell that with the work we're gonna be doing for an arts district her role in that is going to be integral. Um, So I think that's definitely a a part of it. So you want to kick her out and take the business over, I see. No, no, no. I just want to be, I just want to be a community partner. Like she obviously has a leadership there. I want to be the one to go, hey, let's take that and amp it up. That's all I got off the top. I could provide a list of someone, but this is a lot of places we hit up. This is a lot. Uh, You gave us two. If people really want more, they can email you at info at 40thward.org or text or or tweet or Facebook. Sweet Virginia's Kitchen is dope. Side Practice Coffee is dope. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of really good stuff there to kind of continue building on. Mm-hmm. Favorite uh, family activity to do in the 40th Ward? You know what's cool? Just hanging out at Wittemack Park. Wittemack Park is, like, huge. So there's, like, so many different things you can do. I think once we get a dog-friendly area there, it'll be even another one. Um, but but I think a lot of our parks in, in Wittemack, because it's very special. Oh, Sorry. Yes, special place for Winnemag Park. West Ridge Nature Park, which people snooze on left and right. You just drive right past that thing without knowing really what a hidden gem it is. I'd say that is something to take the family. Just be mindful of potential ticks because there's a lot of tall grass there. And that's just being real. But it's a really beautiful space. And uh, I got to give credit where it's due as far as Alderman O'Connor's work on that. Like, I got to give him the credit. Yep. Okay, so you brought up Winnemac Park, and I'm going to ask you this as uh, Andre Vasquez, 40th Ward resident, not Alderman Vasquez. Winnemac Park fireworks on the 4th of July, yes or no? Um, <laughs> this just got hot. No, no, like, like, yes with an asterisk, meaning there are ways to do it legally and safely. Like, we actually were, were finding out, like, the way Navy Pier has fireworks, all it takes is 5000 bucks, and you've got a vendor that can do all of the permitting and do it in a safe manner. I think if we do that, you got a curfew on there. You can you can meet the compromise of having to do it in, in a way that's like works. That is not Andre as a resident, because Andre as a resident wouldn't have known all that. But the work that we've been figuring out, uh, I think that that meets the, the compromise. The hard part is no one that does the fireworks currently is letting us know that they're the ones that do it, because I'd love to sit at the table and go, hey, let's figure out a way to do it responsibly uh, in a way that I think everybody could win. Uh, favorite Chicago style iconic food. I used to like the the chop pack at Choppers, like the burgers. Those are just fire. Um, but because you said iconic, and I was still thinking about the businesses in the area, Jimmy's Pizza. I know those are New York slices, but those slices are amazing. Chicago made, baby. Mm-hmm. Can't argue with that. Yep. Uh, favorite Chicago neighborhood to spend a day in that's not in the 40th Ward. Wow. Um, 
uh, Wicker Park. Even, yeah, well, that's right. We're neighborhoods. We're not community areas. I always get that mixed up. Sometimes <laughs> yeah. we don't exist for a conversation. Sometimes we do. Yeah, no, I think for me, Wicker Park, just because I grew up in Wicker Park, I, I did a lot of like growing up as an artist, like subterranean over on like Milwaukee Damon. So that for me is always a place I like to go back to and kind of see, you know, it's just a really cool spot. And I, I think it's kind of kind of coming full circle. Like I want to create those kind of experiences in the 40th and help work with partners to do that, but doing it in a way where people that live there can stay there, which I think should be a priority every time you do that kind of work. Is there anything that you'd like to directly say to those who are listening? Yes. You know, I, we, we talked a lot about the community stuff, but we're also trying to really work when we talk about budgets and when we talk about police and accountability and, you know, what some people call defund, you know, CPD. Um, I just really invite people to, to have the conversation with me about what public safety can be. I think if we look at, you know, more proactive public safety measures and not reactive ones, I think you get better results. And I think, you know, people get hung up on, on defund as a term which is why I tend to frame it differently and say, we just need a conversation about budget reprioritization. Like if you think about the fact that we spend 40% of the operating budget on one department, that being CPD, and the fact that your average neighbor hasn't seen their alley get fixed in over a decade, you might wanna think about where the funds go and actually have real safer streets that don't have all the potholes and reallocate funding. And I think that's just a better way to have the conversation. So if any neighbors have like, concerns or, or really want to voice that <laughs> again you can tweet you can facebook whatever you need to to get in touch with me because i want to have those conversations with our neighbors thank you yeah this was awesome thank you so much for spending some time this morning with us yeah thanks i thought you were gonna bring up the signage so i was waiting for like oh let's look you can talk signage too if you want um, oh no you know i don't know how much the general public uh cares about my my specific questions about signage you know i just know that that's something uh, we've been asked about routinely over the last couple of years as a chamber by small businesses. How can we expedite some of these permits? So seeing yeah. that there was some movement potentially on signage was exciting. And I was just trying to understand um, why you might oppose the specific changes yeah. proposed. No, absolutely. And that's why I appreciate the question, right? I think there's a couple of things. One is it's part of a, a omnibus bill, if you will, that also includes a liquor ban at 10 p.m. for businesses, right? So I think trying to to in effect couple it with things that we know businesses don't want is a problem. But if we're talking about the signage process itself, yes, it needs to be streamlined. It is something we talked to businesses all over on day one, like Mark Lieberson over at Replay, shout out to Replay, was like, hey, uh, why don't I show you what this process looks like? And it is extremely cumbersome, right? So I don't disagree that that needs to be streamlined. I think the concern that, that we see is kind of the messenger, right? The, uh, the mayor has worked left and right to try to undermine the other branch of government and to remove any kind of power from like the, the, those that have been elected to advocate for their communities. So for me, I think a good compromise would be to explicitly state, hey, it doesn't need a full council vote because that does slow things up when you only have once a month that that occurs, but explicitly saying, weighing in what that city council member you know opposes or um supports needs to be a part of that process so it's it's not it's not that we don't want to streamline it it's that they the administration finds every way possible to remove that voice and what i say to everyone is if you had a problem with automatic prerogative you should really watch out for mayoral prerogative it is the sequel to jaws that no one wants and they need to make sure to be aware of that 
to back it up for people who, uh, you know, we were jumping into the middle of a conversation that uh, Alderman Vasquez's point started on Facebook an hour before this uh, interview. Uh, and I think he may have responded to during this interview. Uh, we're talking about a bill of small business relief uh, package that was proposed to city council. And so I'm curious as, you know, as we're looking at that bill as advocates for small businesses, and that's something that on the surface makes a lot of sense. And now I better understand your concerns. Are there other things in that bill that we should be looking out for? Because there's a lot in there. I mean, I think that's the thing. There's a lot of things in there that we all support, right? Like I think even some of the, like lifting some restrictions on hiring for people who have been like former incarcerated there's a lot of really good things but the thing that we've learned is when you see a lot of the really good things you got to look at the fine print on what's being coupled with it and i think you know the one the signage thing for that reason uh is one that we brought up and then the second one which i think i have not heard of one person defend i think everyone thinks it's absolutely ridiculous to try to have a curfew of 10 p.m on liquor sales um and the reasoning behind it it being framed as like a public safety thing, I think is very irresponsible. I think it leads to more racist narrative as to like, oh, this is what's happening at this liquor store, which is why we need to change the rules citywide. And, and let's just be real. Tactically, it doesn't solve the problem. What, if you have a, a curfew at 10 p.m., all you've done is create the activity at an earlier time. It isn't like people go, oh, we're just not going to do it because there's a curfew at 10. So I just think it's, 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 it's really reinforcing narratives that are outdated and not a way you solve a problem and to not have data behind it and say we want to keep it permanent especially when in the last year every business has had to struggle and people are trying to get revenue to sustain it's just there's nothing shy biz strong about that idea so david i don't know if you uh were uh, on this call earlier this week when we were discussing this with bacp uh, the department of business affairs and consumer protections but one of the things that i thought was interesting was all the reporting about uh why they were proposing uh the mayor's office was proposing a 10 p.m cutoff seems to be around public safety and that seemed to be coming from the mayor's office and then on the call uh, the Commissioner of Business Affairs was very quick to say that this wasn't a public safety issue and they had never made it one, that it was a quality of life issue. And then she went on to describe the impact on quality of life for things like slower response times for 311 calls and 911 calls. Um, so I'm wondering how you respond to the parsing of this being framed as a quality of life issue as opposed to a safety one. I mean, what do people call 911 for? Come on public safety right so like i don't even understand i just be honest hearing it on its face i don't understand that logic it's like no this isn't public safety it's about response time for when people call 911 that is a weird sentence for me to even try to get across so i i i understand that it's challenging for the people that have to stand behind that proposed legislation and they've got to do the work in the departments to help advocate for what the administration has brought forth I think what we're seeing is it puts a lot of people in difficult positions that they can't necessarily defend. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't understand the logic the same way I would imagine you didn't understand the logic hearing it. So, yeah. I mean, I feel like it is now best practices to have big bills and just inserts as much stuff as possible and just let things like slide in there that don't make sense. We saw that with the federal government over the past year and a half with COVID. Um, and so it's kind of no surprise that the city is doing it now with 
a, a bill that should be helping folks, but. Yeah, and, and I, I think there should also be a concern that it's just put in there to be removed or to put in there to cause distraction as we all argue about this to see what else is happening. So I just, you know, again, we need the public to be aware, informed and alert, and we'll do our best to communicate to them as we see stuff like this come up. It's a good way for folks to come in and um, learn about the process. So future aldermen, future alder women, future alders um, can go in and really take a stand for uh, their communities. Yeah, and, and and I'll just say this, I don't even drink, right? So like, uh, clearly people know um, cannabis is is what I consume. So this isn't like, a, a, oh, I need to hang out. It, I, it's not in my interest. I, I'm just looking at it from fairness and, and freedom. And I think that it's not, not the direction to go in. Well, I, I appreciate you bringing us back to that. I know that doesn't quite qualify as a rapid fire question, but um, I'm, I'm glad we had some time to dig into that a little bit deeper. Absolutely. Uh, anytime. Thank you, Alderman Vasquez, for joining us today. And thank you for listening to Always Andersonville, the podcast. For more information about Alderman Vasquez or the 40th Ward, please visit him on Facebook, Twitter, or at his website at 40thward.org. Show notes on today's episode can be found at andersonville.org. To find more information about the Greater Ravenswood Chamber of Commerce and stay connected to the Ravenswood community, you can visit us at ravenswoodchicago.org or find us on Facebook at Ravenswood Chicago and Instagram at ravenswood underscore CHI. And thank you for listening. Always Andersonville, the podcast, is produced by the Andersonville Chamber of Commerce and currently recorded on Zoom. We thank you for your listenership, and if you like the podcast, please subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting platform. We are also actively looking for podcast sponsors to sustain our projection. Please email us at info at andersonville.org for more information. Thank you for your continued support, for staying active in our community, and for staying always Andersonville.